Hi, welcome to the Shallow Dive on Derech Eretz Zuta, the Little Book of Etiquette, a collection of wisdom from our sages about how to relate to life. I hope you enjoy. Perches, Brisa Zion, Koha Mashpil es Atmo, Mechaven es Shmu also. All those who humble themselves can focus their, literally their hearing, shmu also, but the shmu is something that is heard. So that, that's a bit of a paradox that you would think in order to be heard, you must be aggressive, that you must make, you know, get up on the soapbox and make sure that you are heard. But he, he actually says, to the contrary, the Brysa says, one who lowers themselves can focus the, the teaching, what is heard, as it were. And that's, it's a teaching that, that has various parallels elsewhere that if somebody is of humble spirit, so their words will be received. Meaning there's, there's a sincerity of what they're saying is not clouded by their own ego. So the receptiveness to their words will be greater. And all who violate the words of the sages are liable to spiritual excision. And th- that is, is a, a very strong statement because this, this is, uh, spiritual excision is one of the most, probably the most devastating punishment available and that the, the ultimate expression of spiritual excision is complete and utter death in the, the entire cessation of existence which although in certain eastern traditions would be a goal from a Jewish perspective that values life as a gift of God existence is not suffering God is the, the ultimate most intense form of existence our existence is a gift brought from that existence but being cut off entirely is the, the ultimate punishment for the human being who is created to have an eternal existence so the, the violation of the words of the sages leading to that ultimate destruction is is a bit of a shock meaning it's not it's not against the word of god per se so it sounds like it's against the words of the sages although the words of the sages the, the, the authority to, for them to legislate is given by God. So that's, it's, it's not just because they said so, but because God said, listen to those that sit in a seat of Moses, as it were, that they are in the authority by God to be the eyes of the congregation to give that guidance of how to 
adequately fulfill the Torah and, and avoid violation of the Torah so that the, the break away from, from that is, is to a degree a break away from the community. So Parish Mansibar, somebody who separates themselves from the community, subjects themselves to a, a loss of that connection in the hereafter as well. The Torah, the Torah refers to the afterlife, multiple places, as Nesaf al as being brought in to one's nation. So that this, not to God forbid, engage in ancestor worship, but to recognize that although we have an independent identity, there is also a superstructure that is part of our collective identity. So it, it's, it's something that is more obvious to people coming from an Eastern tradition and more suppressed for those living in a Western tradition. But it is the truth that we don't merely exist as individuals, but as part of a broader framework. The Rambam says this, in his introduction to Pirish Mishnayas, that a person who is isolated is, is in, in a situation that could lead to insanity. Right? Complete isolation, solitary confinement, as it were, the solitary component is debilitating. We are social beings, and it's... It's not just a convenience or a nice thing, but having social connections is part of who we are. We are part of a superstructure that includes our national identity, of course, in the broad sense of humanity. There's a superstructure that is part of our identity. So being brought into our nation as the description of the eternal life in the hereafter that that is is a significant insight into the the component of our identity that transcends the individual and we, we, the the sages as the eyes of the congregation the same way that a person's eyes are a part of them so if somebody disassociates themselves from their eyes in a certain sense, they're, they're, cutting, they're cutting themselves off from life. The, the Talmud asserts that the blind are like dead. It's, it's similar in certain regards. Now, obviously, not entirely. A person who's blind is alive, and it's murder to kill them. It's not that they're dead. Don't, don't go and bury them because they're blind. But there's an aspect of the the centrality of sight to the human living condition that is so integral that they are to a degree dead if they don't have the faculty of sight. We, we need to be able to relate to the world through sight to have a full life. And the eyes of the congregation are the Chachamim. So in, in a superstructure, as it were, the eyes are the sages that, that have the Torah, and it's, it's open for whoever, whoever wants to, to come and take it. But the, the, 
disassociation from the eyes is is an, an element of death. So in the, in the superstructure sense, it's chayev karis. He's, he's liable to ex, spiritual excision by cutting himself off from the vision and the guidance of that vision of the sages. The, to give a, a practical example of this, there is a prohibition to uh, for a Jew to marry an idolater. There's a biblical prohibition, according to Rishimin. Uh, there is a debate the exact parameters of the prohibition. According to Rabbi Yehuda, the prohibition is specifically the Canaanite nations. According to Rabbi Shimon, it's all idolatrous nations. There's a rabbinic, well, implied rabbinic prohibition to marrying a non-Jew that is not an idolater, according to the Rambam. That is, I would say, the, the simple reading of the Rambam is that if they're not idolatrous, you do not have the biblical prohibition, but you have a rabbinic prohibition. And the rabbinic prohibition, where it applies, is actually, uh, it, there's a verse in Malachi that describes the, the repercussions of the biblical prohibition, if you will, uh, well, it, there's, there are different rabbinic prohibitions. So the biblical prohibition would be marrying an idolater. But what about having a casual relationship with an idolater that is not marriage? That is rabbinically prohibited, certainly, at the very least, if not more than that. And the, the verse says that there's essentially kares, midivreya, spiritual excision, that is the punishment meted out for the violation of this rabbinic decree, which is a shocking idea. How could it, how could it be? I mean, it, there is, they're given power to legislate and include in that legislation as a power to punish. Right? You can give makas mardas, you can have the courts give out um, lashes that the Torah does not require or mandate, but rabbinically, they, they're, ha they're empowered, empowered to give out punishment, but to the extent that they're empowered to give out the punishment of spiritual excision is quite a shocking idea that, that is implicit in the idea of karis midivrayim, that there can be spiritual excision as a result of violation of a rabbinic law, not every rabbinic law, this is a particularly severe rabbinic prohibition, but the, the, the reach that that could be incorporated into the words of Malachi is, is quite eye-opening about the extent of, of that power to, to legislate um, that you could have karish midivreya. What did you say? So what? What so, is the punishment spiritual? Spiritual excision is to be cut off spiritually from the Jewish people. So that's that is in in the ultimate, in, in the in in the fullest most severe expression of that punishment, it means just totally ceasing to exist. So that's that is the 
the ultimate expression. A person could have partial spiritual excision where their, their spiritual existence is impaired. So the eternal life, which is meant to be unblemished, could have with it some aspect of being cut off. So a person who's alive but is missing a finger, they're alive, but they're missing a finger. They're partially missing. So in a, in a similar sense, there could be partial spiritual excision. It does not have to be absolute. That's why just because somebody did one thing wrong doesn't mean they should say, oh, well, anyway, might as well do more things wrong because there's, there's a, a matter of degree. And the, the absolute worst possible result would be to be entirely cut off and cease to exist uh, as a result, result of one's actions. In this world. Yeah, is it okay to make a comment? I don't want. I don't please. want to interrupt you because I definitely want to hear everything you want to say. Um, yeah, if we could go back to about the blindness, I wonder if people like. Okay, yes, they they're kind of in the. It is like I guess you know, like say death from sight in a way. But I, but I wonder if like I know like they say like others. I've read that people who are deaf or or people that are blind or have lost one sense, their other senses become can become quite enhanced. So I think maybe they, they see now in a different way than what we would call necessarily sight, but they are seeing and perhaps even seeing more than what those who are sighted see, just in a very different way that we don't, our sighted people don't necessarily know about or don't know about yet per se, but are learning perhaps about at least from at least scientifically, I don't know about spiritually because I haven't. I don't deal in dubics or afterlife and and knowing what what what, what kind of spiritual things are, are going on. I mean, obviously they they won't be seeing you know red and blue per se, you know, in a scarf or something. But they they might have some sense of you know they can feel the scarf. They have some sense of it. They may see things in a, a very different way. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I wonder it's true. about like, and I, I, I appreciated that the comment about okay, like you're cut off, like if you marry someone who's or you're casually involved with someone who's an um, adulterer or um, what was the other word you said? Adulterer. Adulterer, but in, but there was another. You said even they're not adulterer, but they're like um, they're not well, they're not Jewish. They're whatever kind of spiritual beliefs they have or whatever different. Um, that like just okay. So if you're sitting with them, but it is, or or just because you like you know cut off your finger or you married I'm thinking or if you married this person or you're sightless, you're not completely dead. Like you're still here, you can still do things. You don't have to keep doing bad things or you can still use like the senses that you have. You can still you can still do as good as you're able to with your um, adulterer partner. Perhaps perhaps your adulterer partner would convert at some point. Um, I've seen, I actually seen that happen where people who I don't know if they're necessarily adulterers, but they are, or they are some other of some other faith, or they they were grown up as some other faith, or you know um, they weren't necessarily Jewish, but they have later become Jewish. They've taken great interest in Judaism. They are no like I guess similar to a Noahide type person, or or um, just you know they do they do what they can. I've also seen I, I've also read that sometimes they I've read that or people have told me I haven't necessarily read it, but I've been told by certain Jewish people that. If someone's marrying an adulterer or someone who's not Jewish, perhaps they have some sort of mental difficulty or um, their spiritual antenna is off in some way. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely off, that something might be a little bit off, or perhaps we just don't understand what is going on with them because we're not of them. We're not in their, in their spiritual or non-spiritual moccasins, so to speak. 
and I don't know, I read in the Torah that there was there was someone, I can't remember now who, but they did marry someone who was not necessarily Jewish. And then, or you do, like, they're interested, like, in Jethro's family. They weren't necessarily Jewish, but then Jethro converts. His family is converted. People, they convert. So the association is maybe initially not necessarily, you know, Jewish people, but they do, these people that they're associating with do end up converting, or, or we have the expression of righteous Gentile. So it's not to say that, you know, you're completely cut off from your people. You're still very, you can very much be involved. You can still very much use your, your lack of sight or your other senses to, to be involved. Yeah, that, that, that is correct, that if somebody does lose their vision, so there, there are many indications that the, the brain function that was dedicated to sight actually is re, uh, reformatted, as it were, toward, towards heightening the sensitivity of other senses. So their sense of hearing or sense of touch is often much stronger than a person who relies on sight predominantly, which is most of us. So th there, there are shifts to try and make up for the loss of sight. Of course, it is not fully made up for. It's, it's not uh, equally able to participate in this world without vision. But yes, there, there are possibilities of compensation in degree. So, so that, is, that is true. And spiritually as well, that, that being cut off from the eyes of the congregation does not mean necessarily absolute death, right? That's, that's, uh, it's in a similar sense. There are degrees of being cut off and degrees of impairment from that being cut off. Right, so that, that's the Chayv Kharis for violating the words of the sages. That, that, is, um, that is something that normally is not the case. Meaning if somebody does not, let's say for example, um, they, they did not have Mikra Megillah. A Jew is obligated to hear the Megillah reading. They did not they're not liable to spiritual excision for that act in of itself. But the idea is, if they are, not just that they didn't do a particular rabbinic injunction, but if they've rejected the words of the, of the Chachamim in a broader sense, uh, is, it's interesting. Sometimes a person can have a degree of connection through antagonism which, although not necessarily healthy or wise, is still actually a degree of connection. And you see this in, in, in many areas. Just to, to pick an example, you look at Spain, that there was intense warfare over a period of approximately 800 years where the Iberian Peninsula was conquered by people of the Muslim faith, and then it was essentially reconquered by people of the Christian faith. So you had this series of wars that, that were across the peninsula for centuries and centuries, and the impact each had on the other was quite dramatic. The, the, the Islamic influence on Catholic Spain, and vice versa was was 
very deep and, and very long-standing. So the, the, although there was a relationship that was antagonistic, obviously, they were literally at war with each other for centuries, but yet the, there's a degree of connection through that antagonism that invariably leaves its indelible mark. You're, you are connected, even if it's antagonistically, to the one that you are paying attention to, even as your enemy. So, to some degree, it's better to be antagonistic towards the sages than to be entirely oblivious and aloof and disconnected. That, that could be even worse. Uh, not that one should be antagonistic towards the eyes of the congregation. I'm not recommending that, but I'm just saying that the that still has a degree of connection, which is better than no connection whatsoever. And then finally, the Bryce says, I, I, yeah. "I hear, I, I'm sorry, I hear what you're saying, but but I but I uh, but if someone's like out to, like the Rhoda, they're out to get me and kill me. That I, I I think I'd rather not have I'd rather not have that that, that connection. <laughs> I'm not I'm not encouraging a Rodif to pursue after you. Uh, of course, if that happens, the way you need to relate to them would be with the number one priority of self-defense, stopping that pursuit with the minimum force necessary. That's, that is definitely the directive and, and should be treated as a Torah imperative. It's, it's not just an option, but it's a requirement. But, but the, the long-standing impact of, a, uh, of an antagonism is, is definitely there. So if, there, if there's a, and I'm not talking about a specific redifa, but if there is a, a sense of rivalry, so it's us versus them, we are looking at them and they are looking at us. You, you look at, for example, culturally, you know, Spanish music, you see a huge crossover between Christian music and the Islamic music. They're clearly strongly influencing each other. Uh, and, and that's... I'm sorry, you're, you're getting cut out a bit. I, I missed what you said about the music. Yeah, that the, the, the influence of... Spanish music, the Christian music influencing the Muslim music, and the Muslim music influencing the Christian music, you see clearly a strong influence in both directions. The, the fact, even though they're enemies, but there's, there's a relationship there that there's crossover. Uh, it's, not, it's not that they're friendly, but there's attention being paid, and that has an impact. So the, the, the social impact is is there not necessarily only through friendly ties, also through antagonism. And people are impacted by their surroundings, by what they pay attention to. So that, that's, I'm not advocating, I said, I'm not advocating for antagonism to the words of our sages. I'm just saying that to some degree, that antagonism would be more of a connection and preferable to no connection whatsoever. Right? You have the, at the Seder table, you have the, the wicked son. He still comes up. He shows right, up. Yeah, yeah. He might be antagonistic, but yeah. he's part of the Seder. He's there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is more important than yeah. not showing up. Right? That's, that, yeah. that, that's, uh, so when we talk about yeah, Chayv Kars being you. cut off, the, the, yeah. the ultimate being cut off is, is just being dead and totally indifferent to any, any connection whatsoever.
Thank yeah, you. Yeah, indifference is almost worse than the wicked son. I, 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 have, I went to a center once, and uh, the leader of the center said, there's the fifth son is the one who's not even there. Right. Right. And uh, so. Yeah. And this is something we, we actually saw it in the Rambam. And it's, it's coming from over here and other sources. All that find fault have fault. All who find fault have fault. So the, 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 the ability to be sensitive to fault is rooted to some degree in that fault. If somebody sees uh, a, a recurring problem, right? the classic case we, we mentioned, if somebody keeps calling other people mamzerim, so he's a mamzer, he's a mamzer. So, you know, it, it's, uh, if he's seeing mamzerus everywhere, he's seeing this spiritual blemish, so it's probably coming from his own internal blemish. If somebody is, is seeing a recurring problem, if, <laughs> if everybody in your life is, uh, is, it, is bothering you in a particular manner, so then that could be that the problem is with you. So, so that's the, the degree of, of sensitivity that is, is not warranted. It, we're not talking about a, a one-off situation. Somebody cut you off and, and you, you see that they were not acting nice to you. That's not what we're talking about. You can, you can objectively see something without necessarily being that you cut people off and you're, you're a terrible driver, you know, a mean, ruthless driver. That's, but it, and if, if it becomes a motif that this is what you do, you, you find, you know, this one, this one is an evid, that one's an evid, the other guy's an evid, so that would, would indicate that there's some lacking by the person who is impugning these deficits and deficiencies on others. It's coming from somewhere. It's, if, they, if they see it all around them, so they, they should look within for an aspect of this flaw. So that's, um, yeah, that, that's an important point, not just in, in Yichus, but in general. In general, if you, if you see something that's, that is irksome, especially if it's recurring and broad-based, so the tikkun might need to be from within. Welcome to the Shallow Dive on Koheles, the book of Ecclesiastes. Join us as we explore the treasures gathered by King Solomon. I hope you enjoy it. Perik Dalid. So starting the fourth chapter in Kohelas. Pasuk Aleph. Vishavzi ani vo'ere. And I, I sat, I rested, I collected myself, and I saw. 
Rashi says, Beruach HaKodesh. This is a vision through a spirit of holiness, divine, the divine inspiration, as it were. What did King Solomon see? As kol ha'ashukim, all of those that are oppressed, ashenasim tachas hashamish, literally that are made under the sun. So that the, the word, the oppressed, you could learn it as the oppressed or the oppressions. And, and then that will be a corollary of how you say nasim. Is it impacting the person? Are we referring to the oppression damaging the victim and they are now damaged by being victimized? That's one way of looking at it. Or the oppressions, the acts of oppression that are done. So King Solomon saw from Ruach HaKodesh, Vihine, and behold, Dimas Hashukim, the tear of the oppressed, Ve'ein lahem menachim. So he sees the tear of the oppressed and that they do not have a comforter, nobody to help get them out of this situation. Umiyad oshkehem koach, and from the hands of those that oppress them is strength. And he repeats, and they do not have a comforter. Let's let's see it's it's what this what this means. Let's look at Rashi first. So we saw the first part of Rashi that Shlomo Amalek sees this, Biruach HaKodesh, Eskola Shukim. He interprets this as referring to Hanasim HaShukim B'Gehenim. That they are afflicted with the burden of their, their own oppression in purgatory. B'Masim HaShem Nasim Tachas HaShemesh. With the actions that were done in this world, Tachas Khalife Shaltera. Tachas Khalifeha Shaltera. Rashi is saying a remarkable, remarkable point over here that the afflictions are not just what was done that was wrong and evil and painful, but there's also lost opportunity cost. What could they have done? Tachas Khalifeha Shaltera. He's learning not just under the, the sun in this world, but as we saw in the beginning, one of the interpretations is instead of the Torah. So they're being afflicted in purgatory for what they, the choices that they made instead of the Torah. 
So that's that's the 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 value of what they chose to do, whatever it was, has some value. It may be minuscule, it may be negative, but the the loss is what they could have done, what they could have achieved. And that's really the the greatest tragedy for the person is the lost opportunity cost. And the the the, the wasted opportunity, the squandered opportunity. There's the story of the Nitziv that he wasn't the most successful child and his parents tried and they they really wanted the best for him and they decided he's not being successful in school. Let's send him to apprentice to become a shoemaker and hopefully he'll he, he won't achieve the greatness we had hoped for him, but, you know, he could make an honest living, and, and that's good. This is good. So they, they had given up on their original aspirations for him, that they thought that he was capable of, because he seemed so unsuccessful. And then Siv heard this. He heard the, his parents' discussion. I think he was nine. I don't know. And he heard this, and he came out, and he says, No, I'm going to try harder. I, I, I want to try. He felt that he had been squandering his opportunities, and he had not done what he could have done. And not that there's anything wrong with making shoes. Chanoch, shoemaker, say a great trade and a way to support oneself. That's not the point. Not that he didn't make shoes. He never did become a shoemaker. He did become a Rosh Hashiva. But the point is, he says, imagine had I not heard that conversation and had it not touched my soul, had I not realized that I need to seize the opportunities to be who I can be, had he not had that, he would have lived his life at the end of his life, been an honest, simple shoemaker and gone up to Shemaim. And in heaven, he's being tested. He sees that they pull out a whole bookshelf and they start berating him. They say, where's the Amik Dover on Bereshus? Where's the Amik Dover on Shmos? He says, I'm, you guys got the wrong guy. I'm a simple shoemaker. Well, I don't know what kind of fancy books you have on that shelf. Don't ask me. I don't know how to learn. I know how to make shoes. They say, they say no. You're the Nitziv. <laughs> Where are your Sfarim? Where's your Amik Shela? Where are all of your works? Where's all of your toil in the Torah? And he say, I don't know what you're talking about. So the, the, the great tragedy would be the lost opportunity cost. That would be the, the biggest loss. And not, not necessarily that his choices were even so wicked. They might have just been mediocre. But the loss is still such a burden if he could have 
achieved in a manner that's eternal and just let that opportunity slip away. So Rashi says that that is the greatest loss. Tachas Whatever, whatever person did with their time, whatever they chose to do when they could have been engaged in the Torah, so that's, that is the, the big loss, the lost opportunity. Fascinating, meaning we're talking about oppression. He's not talking about the actual fallout of the sin which of course is bad, but he's talking about the, the loss of the good that should have been as being the primary loss, primary uh, burden, as it were, that oppresses those that suffer in the hereafter. Vihine, and behold, dimas hashukim, the tear of the oppressed. Bochim al nafshosam, they cry over their souls. Ashukos biad maloche mashris veachzorim. And these souls are tormented at the hands of destructive and cruel angels. That's, that's their job to administer punishment. And part of it entails a sense of cruelty, a very deep isolation that there's, there's suffering in the hereafter and their souls are, are being tormented at the hands of these destructive and cruel angels. Those, King, King David says, actually, to Helen, those that pass by and traverse the Valley of Tears, Mayon Yishisuhu, the spring water shall be his, his drink, shall, shall give him, shall sustain him. Elu These are those who go down into Gehenna, purgatory. So purgatory is described as a valley of tears. The, this, the loss of what could have been. And in Parshas Re'eh, the Sifri Darshan's this verse, like it's similar to the verse that's over here. The verse in Tehillim, in Psalms, is explained similarly to this verse. The tears, the valley of tears and the tears of those who are oppressed, as referring to the tears of those crying over their souls in purgatory. And from the hand of their oppressors, strength, literally, it's, it's unclear how to connect it. Rashi says, These are oppressors that force them and coerce them. So that's, that's an external 
type of oppression. So, so the way Rashi is interpreting the verse that seems to be almost repetitive, he says there's, there's a series of two types of oppression. There's the oppression that we do to ourselves, and there's the oppression that we suffer at the hands of others. And on both, he says, the Ein Lahem Menachem, and those who are oppressed do not have a comforter, do not have somebody to, to help them get out of it. And this is what King Solomon says, that the primary oppressor is the person themselves. That they lost those opportunities. They oppressed and afflicted themselves. There is a secondary element where a person is subject to the oppression of external people. Also, a, a, a type of oppression that, that can happen, we see it does happen. And also, by both, there is no comforter. Yeah, Targum. Targum says in, in a different angle. Targum says, Vachazis arum less tav ba'alma adain. One second. No. The savis ono. And I have settled. Vachazis, and I see. Yes, kol anisin. All those oppressors. Di isavidu la that they, what I've seen, what they do to the righteous. And what they, the, the oppression that they engage in in this world, that the righteous suffer at the hands of those that push them. And there's nobody that gives them words of comfort. So they suffer, the righteous are suffering at the hands of the wicked, and nobody is coming to their aid. And there's nobody who saves them from the hand of their oppressor. With a strong hand, they're oppressed with a strong hand. And the oppressor does so with rejoicing. The oppressor is very happy to be the oppressor. The less di yanchim lahon. And there is none that comforts them. So, so the Targum is, is framing this a little bit differently than Rashi. It's not talking about in Gehenim, it's talking about in this world, according to Targum. He's learning tachas hashomesh, under the sun, meaning in this world, not like Rashi, that it's going on lost opportunity of Torah from the perspective of the world to come. And according to, to the Targum, he sees that the righteous are not always winning. Sometimes the bad guys win. Sometimes the bad guys are powerful and they get away with it and they're happy and, they, and they're rejoicing in the oppression and still nobody is coming to their aid. 
that's that's a pretty pretty <laughs> rough perspective that King Solomon sees, which is kind of a, a bit jarring from the introduction to the verse. Vishavti ani, that the context of him being able to see this is from resting, is, is taking a step away to be able to see all this. The, the, the state of oppression can be totally bypassed, totally ignored. It requires a, a certain yishuv to see this, a certain, a certain uh, stillness to, to perceive what's going on. It's, it's not something that's headline news. It's exactly what he's saying. This is, there is nobody bringing it to, to other people's attention. The, the way to, to see this is in stillness. The Ibn Ezra has a, a little bit of a, a slightly different angle and helps with the word koach. Right, the, as we saw, Targum says koach means that the power of the oppressor, he says, is the strength and the rejoicing of the oppressor in their oppression. Ibn Ezra says a different idea. Umiyadoshkeem. There is power in the hands of the oppressors. And the oppressed have no recourse other than to cry. They have nobody to comfort them. What is typical is somebody cries over the loss of their debt. So people know he had a lost, he, he's crying, and people come to comfort the mourner. That's not what happens over here. It says there is no comforter twice. It says that there's a repetitiveness, a complacency. This is just the way it is. It's, it's no longer an outrage. This is just what happens. The oppressor oppresses the victim again and again. And, the, the consistency, the, the koach, the power, the staying power, of the oppressor continuing the oppression creates a, a reinforcement of Ein Lehem Menachem. Nothing, nothing noteworthy here. It's just the way it is. If, if something happens once, it's a tragedy. But if that's just the way it is, so then although the victim is suffering, but other people don't view it as a loss. They just become inured. They just see this. It's just the way it is. So they're, they're crying and crying out. Two things. The crying of their tears, their, their sorrow, their suffering. Attack also, and they're crying out for help. It doesn't help. Nobody comes to their aid. 
So in the beginning part of the verse, the Ibn Ezra explains, Vishavti, he says, not, not that I sat or collected, collected myself to be able to perceive this, but that I changed my mind. Like tshuva. Kalama chazarti bi. Vishavti and I had a change of heart. Vishavti mizah inyan. Shechashavti. Shahatov adam shismach. Changing my mind from what I just said before. That it's good for man to rejoice. Bavur shelo yuchal lismach. Because he's not able to rejoice. Bavur sheyesh ba'olam chomos. There is injustice in the world. There are oppressors in this world. So how can he rejoice with the fruits of his labor? Someone's going to knock on his door and say, I'll be your robber today. You know, I'll take that wallet. I'll, I'll take that car, whatever it is. You know, I'll, I'll service you. <laughs> right? he, how's he supposed to rejoice when there's oppression in the world? And he will be oppressed. It doesn't necessarily come from just a thug. It can be state-sponsored. If the king does it, how is he supposed to have redress? If his property is commandeered, you know, it's, it's much harder to, to deal with that kind of oppression. Oshofet. Doesn't always have to be just the king, although that would be a supreme example where he feels powerless to beat the system. There's, there's no recourse. Or a judge who takes a bribe. It's, it's crooked. It's corrupt. How is he supposed to have justice? Or on the lowest level, you have this petty criminal. They might not be so powerful in terms of a system, but they get away with plenty. So there's lots of injustice. So he says, I, I can't suggest that that is the full good when how can you rejoice fully when what is yours may be taken away from you? It's not going to be a full rejoicing. This he's saying, even if it's not actually taken away. Somebody has increased assets and wealth, they have increased concerns. What's going to be with their wealth? So the, the enjoyment of it is impaired. It's not a full tov. It's not good in the ultimate sense. If they're, they're worried about their, what's given to them being taken away. That's the, the blessing. Ah, we have the Kohen here. The blessing in Birchas Kohanim is not just that God bless you, and that He guard you. The only one who can guard you, the only one who can guard what He gives you is God. There is no power that can take away from you what God has given you if God wants you to have it. But that is, that is the Shmira. God's protection is the only constant that would prevent the, the injustice of the oppressor taking away his gift. God wants you to have it, so that's it. He can, he can guard you and, and protect you and protect it for you, the blessing for you. But without that, if somebody doesn't know if they have that, so Ibn Ezra is saying, 
the rejoicing won't be complete. He's, he's going to feel a sense of, of loss, even with what he has, that it's not, it's not necessarily staying by him. Yeah, the Mitsuras David, he says also, Chazarti. Chazarti viraisi es kol ha'iruim ba'olam. I see everything that takes place in this world. Behold, the, the tear of the oppressed. He explains, Dimas habechi, the tears of crying. Shel haneshokim. Hinezocheles metaftefes. It streams. The, the tears are streaming and dripping. And there's nobody to comfort them. The part of being oppressed is not having recourse. The, the perfect victim is a victim that won't have somebody come to their aid. And that's, that's the, the greatest travesty is, is to victimize somebody that is a good target. They, they have nobody to, to comfort them, to take to take up their grievance. Right, this, this injustice is something that should not, not be tolerated. If you see, so the pursuit of defending the oppressed is the imperative. It, it is, to some degree, a chilul Hashem. It is a desecration of divine name. The God who is just, as Avram said, it's, how could you allow an injustice to take place? So if something appears to be unjust as a result of the oppressor's free will, so we should utilize our own free will to restore the justice that is the will of God. I totally agree. To do nothing is a chilul Hashem. That's why we say silence is violence. And this, this principle is what the whole um, Black Lives Matter movement is predicated on. Um, that to stand idly by and do nothing is... Uh, uh, not to justify all the other aspects of that movement that are Marxist and Islamic fascist and so on. But in general, like, we have to uh, do something when we see oppression. Right. Right. We, we, if, if we see that they are whoever it is, is being victimized. So the Ein Lohem Menachem is not something that we should participate in. We should be the right. comforter. That, that itself is a, a compounding the victimization. Right? That part of why they're being victimized is because there is no comforter, there's nobody to come to their aid. And that will reinforce their future victimization. That's why it's repeated. So by being a menachem, by being a comforter, by being one who intervenes to change the situation, that can break this cycle of oppression. Yeah, there's also a masha, um, um, a mishle, a proverb, someone that says, he who sings a happy song to a person in grieving is like one who takes a... Uh, a warm garment away from a 
from a from a houseless man in winter. And uh, this is like I experienced this form of oppression personally when my so-called friends and family like blamed me when I'm victimized or I'm suffering oppression, and their response to it was to was to say, "Well, it's your fault because you're sad." Therefore, we're going to sing you happy songs and pretend that it didn't really happen or it doesn't really matter. And that is uh, like a form of emotional and intellectual uh, abuse in a way. And, um, right. The the, the yeah, basic... shouldn't do that. Uh, I mean, it's almost worse than nothing. For someone to stand idly by and do nothing is bad. But then for someone to come and say, well, it's not that bad. It didn't really happen. And maybe it's your own fault. That's even worse than nothing. And and this happens a lot in culture because people are lazy and they're cowardly. <laughs> right. The, the, the Talmud suggests different names of the Messiah in Sanhedrin, Tzadikhes, Ahmed Beis. One of those names is Menachem, which means comforter, which changes, oh, wow. is, is bringing about a change. And yeah. the, the Talmud tells us that the Messiah is going to usher in the Messianic era as, as the champion of justice, as, as the right. champion of the victim and the downtrodden. So the Seder to learn the, 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 the order of Torah that is most directly connected with the bringing about of the messianic era is nezikin is the laws of torts yep. don't commit oh, acts yeah. of violence or destruction and that is precisely what the messiah is going to to remove all forms of oppression violence and destruction that are against the Torah. He will be the, the, the Menachem. He will be the comforter from, from that, whether, you know, systemic, whether it's from the king or, or judges that are bribing against the rules or petty theft, whatever it is, but the, the tools of the Messiah, it will be revolutionary. It will be revolutionary in, in terms of the paradigm that it will not be through brute force. So... He will do so through being menachem, through having a change of heart. The change of heart will be the catalyst for the restoration of justice. It will not be through more policing. Uh, right. that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that we don't need police. We are not currently in the Messianic era. But looking forward, we need to understand that the, the real most effective way towards justice is for people to value justice in their hearts. They will pursue justice if they're on board and they want justice. So that will eradicate oppression much better than a coercive system, even if that is a well-meaning system. It's not going to be nearly as effective. Right. So, so that, that That's is... That's why it says, mean. So... It's like we're not in the messianic era yet, but there is a partial, um, I mean, in a sense, every Jew is part of a messianic nation because you're bearing witness of this. So a part of one holy and ap 
apostolic nation. That's what I believe. Like, I reject the creed of the Roman Church, but I do believe there is one holy Catholic, no, one holy particular and apostolic nation, not one holy Catholic and apostolic church. There's one one holy... Uh, so it's a... Every Jew who receives that from Isaiah 40 can start to start to bear witness, like bring in that love of justice, which I hopefully will bring the completion of the Messianic era someday. Yeah, the car, so, God willing. So I'm saying this because it's when Jews like yourself are going to come stand in the middle of the uh, the mob and, and speak words of truth and justice that uh, potentially, we could totally change the atmosphere in Portland. They could also throw eggs at you, but it could also really rem- totally change the atmosphere in the city. Um, and that's one step toward bringing, you know, Mashiach. I mean, maybe maybe if we actually wanted Mashiach to come, he would come. You know, maybe, maybe the reason that Mashiach doesn't come is because basically Christians and Jews and other people basically don't really want him to come. That's one thing, how it is for, I think, most people. They just really are just content with the current materialistic world order. <laughs> That's unfortunate. That's that is. We're we're meant to cry on Tisha B'av for the loss of the temple. And if we can't cry for the loss of the temple, we should cry for that itself. That we don't feel any, any sense of loss. That is also tragic. Right? If, if we if we don't have any sense of of looking at the Messianic era as foretold by the prophets and not realizing that there's a huge gap between where we are today and, and where God has, what he has in mind for humanity. That's, that is also tragic. As Sforno explains on the Pasuk, Shaftani umilvad Besides the sources of punishment for the Jewish people, I saw another source of punishment. And that's this discussion of Oshek, of robbery and oppression. And there is no comforter. He says that part of the, the problem is that there needs to be an awakening to tshuva. A person wants to change their situation. Sometimes they realize it's not a good situation they're in, but they're not really aware necessarily that there is a hope through returning to God, that God will comfort them. That requires tshuva. So that's, that is necessary to, the way the Svarna is learning, to, to break this cycle of oppression, is to, to make aware a sense of hope through tshuva. The lahem menachim, and there is no comforter, to teach them to pray. 
בשם, to pray to God. באופן שתהיה תפילות מקובלות. In the manner that their prayer will be acceptable. People need to learn how to pray. If there's the no comforter twice, the Svarno is explaining, is not just that there's oppression through sin or cycle of sin, but the tools to get out of it are lacking. The tools of tshuva and tefillah. If we don't know how to correct ourselves, then we're stuck in the same problem. If we don't know how to reach out in prayer to God, that also is, is a rut that is debilitating. As the verse says in Devarim, and you shall seek out from there the Lord your God, and you shall find if you actually seek Him out with your entire heart and your entire soul, if you seek God out, then you shall find Him. You shall, you shall have this Menachem through prayer. But the prayer is seeking out a need. You have to recognize the need and approach God in a manner that is legitimate. So a person needs to learn how to pray. A person needs to learn how to do tshuva and how to do tefillah. And those are the Menachemim. Those are the comforters from the burden of, of sin and oppression whether we did it to ourselves or not. That's, that's not a, a critical point from the Sforno's perspective. It's a burden that afflicts the person who is being oppressed, and he needs both tshuva and tefillah, which are the menachemim. Those are the, the forces of change to, to deal with the suffering of the past. Tshuva and tefillah. That's the Sforno's explanation. Amen, I agree. Shuvah and tefillah are the menachamim. Right. The Talumas Chochma says on this Pasuk, V'shavtani v'ere sh'ro'a b'ruach ha-kodesh kilkul King Solomon is standing at the pinnacle of the Jewish commonwealth and he's ostensibly at the, the golden age of the Jewish nation from many perspectives. The temple, prophecy, greatness. And he sees with his wisdom and Ruach HaKodesh and the Holy Spirit what the future will bring. And it's not a pretty sight. Those that are oppressed within every generation are under the sun and when he says under the sun, he means in the sense of subject to the natural order, as it were, devoid of divine providence. In the earlier stages of decay, even if there is a variance from true justice. Both the righteous and the wicked will be judged by God. And that itself is, is the, the 
framework that provides a cohesiveness to a healthy society. So even if there is a variance in the execution of justice, but if the society is healthy enough, so God will intervene and judge the righteous and judge the wicked in a, in a manner that is revealed. He will intervene. The Atta, but now, there'll be such decay that 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 will no longer be the case. That God will remove himself from the affairs of the people. And not only will it be a lack of justice on the the human court level or human interaction level, but God's intervention will also be sorely missed. No hashgacha. Kemosha Oma Bitocha, as it says in the rebuke, Vaikra Chavav Chaches, Vaalachti Imochem, Bechamas Keri. And I will go with you with a, a burning distance, if you will. Keri is, is half stance. You want mikra? I'll give you mikra. You want just the roll of the dice? No divine providence? So God will go with you with a, a burning uh, luck, if you will, or, or just fate. Not, not divine providence. Not God responding to a person's righteousness or wickedness. Upirish Rambam, the punishment will be brought about through the, the revoking of the divine providence. So, and, th and that is a feature of the Jewish people, that the Jewish people don't actually have a, a natural life. If you look from the inception of the Jewish people, there is no natural life for the Jewish people. Avram could not have children. Sarah could not have children. Yitzchak and Rivka, Rachel, you find King David. In the natural order, he should have died right after birth. Adam had to give him 70 years. So the, the, the natural state of the Jewish people is not to exist. Not only now, but never. So that's, that is the, the danger of removing divine intervention is natural order. Natural order does not have the Jewish people. They will be just under the sun, just subject to the lack of divine providence. Just under fate. Without any divine providence. To the point of the tears. King Solomon saw the tears of the oppressed. That are not being answered from up above. God, they're, they're, they're crying out to God. And there is no comforter. The ultimate comforter would be God. And this is a, a terrible 
descent into decay of the nation that even though the gates of tears are not locked, but still, if there's su such a state of decay that God's divine providence is removed, so even the gate of tears, although not closed, will, will not affect the, the justice that the, the victim is seeking. Vigam yad oshkem kach. And also from the hand of those that oppress is forced. Kilomar shegam yad oshkem bo hakach ve'ones v'ma she'en lem menachem. V'hainu shemoni mehem darkei ha'tshuva ad shoshkem d'hainu asotam v'kat v'lei govmalem v'rov kochom l'achtiem kol kach ad shelo yialem menachem milamala. That they're they're so removed that they don't have, similar to what the Svarno says, they don't have the pathways of tshuva. And the oppressors, who is the true oppressor, is the satan, is the evil inclination, and the forces that militate towards a person engaging in, in the debasement of the Tzalem Elohim, of the divine image. So, that that the the koach of those forces, the, the power and sustaining power of that is to block a person off from doing tshuva, to not just convince them to sin, convince them not to to do tshuva from that sin. Till the entire generation is removed from divine providence. And on this type of generation did King Solomon say the next verse? And I praise those that have died already. Above those that are alive, but and still in in life, but living a life without any divine providence. It says that's worse. And and he he finds it better to be among the dead. Than those alive without divine providence. Uh, the the existential absurdity, he says, is is crushing. So that, that's the Talmud's Chachma explains the transition of this verse to the next verse. Shlapanim nisha min adar rishon shelon is kalkul kokach veomar leim. Sometimes you can have people that are anachronistic, if you will. They don't really belong in their generation. And, and they are really members of a different generation and they can sense this the loss that others don't sense and, and they can feel this pain. The, the praise of the dead over those living is that they, they recognize that the loss of the current situation, <clears throat> lacking Hashgacha Pratis, lacking divine providence. 